Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to speak with you today. Why are you here during these days of the Feast of Tabernacles? Certainly, God commanded us to observe these days, and so we, we do observe these days. We understand that it's through these holy days that God teaches us about His plan. A plan that involves not just us, but all of mankind, all who have ever lived on the earth. We understand that God has called us for a very special purpose. That we are in training right now to become kings and priests to rule with Jesus Christ at His return. What is God looking for in a king? We have been called to become kings and priests, but what exactly is God looking for in us as we prepare to fulfill that future responsibility? King David is known as the greatest king that Israel ever had. King David represents the gold standard of a sort. The other kings are compared against him. Those that were righteous kings and are known as such, when we are told about them, we read that they walked in the way of their father David and served the Lord. Those that did wickedly, were, they are again compared to David as having not measured up. We're told they did not walk as David their father did. David is the yardstick with which the others are measured against. Today we are going to gain insight into what God is looking for in a king by understanding what impressed God about David. Specifically, we're going to focus on three character traits that David exhibited and what those character traits look like in action. Let's start by turning to 1 Samuel chapter 13. You'll remember that Saul was king before David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we have an account of how Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to perform a sacrifice, and he did not. And he went ahead of his own accord and offered this offering, this sacrifice to God. And that when Samuel did arrive, he corrected Saul for that. And let's notice what he says in verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. So we see here that God was going to put, Sam, put Saul, rather, put Saul away from being king over his people. That God was going to replace him with someone who was after his own heart. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. We see more about that in Acts chapter 13. In verse 22, we read, this is speaking of David, um, or God 
And when he had removed him, that is, when God had removed Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. We're told some very important things about David, the one that God had selected to reign over his people. We're told that he had a heart after God's own heart. We're also told here that God says, which shall fulfill all my will. God didn't say, I think this guy might perform my will. I'm pretty sure he'll follow most of my instructions. No, God says that this man, David, not only a man after his own heart, but here was someone who shall fulfill all my will. How was it that God was so certain of David? We're going to notice the very, how it is that God approached the search, if you will, for a king. What it was that stood out about David. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We will read here about when David was ordained as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16, God's instruction to Samuel. He tells Samuel uh, to fill his horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided me a king among his sons. So uh, Saul, or Samuel rather, is sent to anoint a replacement for Saul. And this is someone that God said would be one of the sons of Jesse. And so Jesse was sent for, and he brought his sons there to appear before Samuel. And notice in verse 6, And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. As Samuel looked on this of Jesse, this Jesse's firstborn, here was a young man who looked like a king. In fact, Samuel's reaction is, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And yet, Notice what God says in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We're given here a contrast between the way people, between the way we look on others, and the way God looks on people. That we look on the exterior, on the package. And as Samuel approached Jesse's firstborn in this way, here the exterior, the package, his height, his countenance, the way he appeared, here was someone who looked like a king. And yet as God was looking on the inward, on the heart, 
This was someone that God says that he has refused. God, as he was looking for a king, looked for someone who was after his own heart. We can see in verse uh, 10, that again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all your children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he keeps the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down until he comes. Here, as Jesse was prepared that one of his sons would be anointed king, it didn't even occur to him that David was the one whom God had chosen. The other sons were all assembled. You know, the significance here is that this shows that difference between the way we look at people and the way God looks at people. Well, this shows that difference in action. That David was not someone who outwardly appeared compared to his brothers as being someone who would be king. And yet, as God looked on the heart of not just all of Jesse's sons, but all of Israel, David was someone who impressed him. And we're going to see more about that. Let's start by turning to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read a very familiar scripture. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we read, But without faith it is impossible... To please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. In order to please God, in order to be found pleasing in God's sight, we must have faith. Real, genuine, living faith is a prerequisite it is a requirement for pleasing God. And David was certainly a young man who exhibited great faith. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we will see an example of this in David's life. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have here the account of the Philistines and the Israelites being gathered together for war. That here they were on opposite sides of a valley. And we're told about a particular Philistine. In verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 17, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had on a helmet of brass upon his head, and was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target or a shield of brass between his shoulders. 
And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spears had weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. You know, when you think about all the stories that we are told in the Bible, this story is something that stands out because of the level of detail. We're given great detail about what Goliath looked like. There's a reason for this. Obviously, as you're familiar with the story, Goliath's appearance had a tremendous impact on the Israelites. And so we have here a picture painted for us so that we can see through these words what they saw. We read of a man whose height was six cubits in a span, this enormously tall man. We, the exact uh, measurements have been lost somewhat over time. These, uh, the exact length of a cubit and a span has changed throughout time. And so exactly what is referred to here, we cannot know for sure. But in all likelihood, we're talking about somebody who was perhaps approaching 12 feet in height. Someone who was tremendously tall. You know, this is a man that if he were playing basketball, could reach over to dunk the ball. He wouldn't have to jump up to dunk the ball. We're told that the, the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. You know, his, his coat of armor here, weighing perhaps 150 pounds. This is what he wore as he went out to battle. You think about that. That uh, tremendous weight that he was under, 150 pounds, that's as much as a small person weighs. And yet this is what he wore as he prepared to go out and do battle. You know, if, if, if you had that kind of weight on you, you wouldn't want to do anything except sit. And yet here he's prepared to go out and do battle. We're told about his, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Perhaps 19 pounds. You think about that. That's more. Just the point of the spear weighed this tremendous amount of weight. That's more than two gallons of milk. If you were at the grocery store and you picked up two gallons, that's more weight than what we see. Uh, this 19 pounds is more weight than that, those two gallons of milk. And yet, this was something that he could hurl through the air with great accuracy. Now, what was the result of his appearance? You know, he uh, would come out dressed for battle, and he would utter this challenge to the Israelites... Verse 10, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11, When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
They were dismayed and greatly afraid. This had a tremendous impact on the Israelites. They were struck with fear. Verse 16, we read that the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. Think about that. 40 days. That's more than a month. And first thing in the morning, when the Israelites are waking up, what do they wake up to? But this giant coming out and intimidating them with this challenge. And the last thing before they go to bed and drift off to dreams, they hear again this challenge. And they were greatly dismayed. And yet, let's notice on down, when David had been sent by his father to come and check on his brothers, and out comes this Philistine. Let's notice verse 23. And as he talked with him, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spoke according to the same words. And David heard them. Verse 24, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were sore afraid. You know, as the Israelites, the army of Israel heard and saw Goliath come out. They ran in terror, were greatly afraid. Only this time David was there and David heard this. And he also saw the army of Israel fleeing, hiding. And notice his reaction. Verse 26, And David spoke to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? An amazing response, particularly in contrast to what was going on all around him. David's response is, who does this guy think he is? David here reacted and showed great faith by his actions. When this took place, when David's there and he sees Goliath come out and utter this challenge, David didn't go run and fall on his knees and work up faith. This was David's knee-jerk reaction. David's initial impulse was one of faith. He didn't have to go and work it up. It was already there. David reacted with great faith. David was focused on how big God was. Everyone else was focused on how big Goliath was. This enormous individual. Exceedingly intimidating. Physically. And that's the extent of it. Intimidating physically. And yet David was not intimidated because rather than being impressed by how big Goliath was, David was impressed by God. 
And in contrast, Goliath simply didn't measure up. How is it that David had such faith? David couldn't call a timeout and go take a break and study God's Word. The reaction was his response was something that was immediate. It was based on the relationship that he already had with God. It was based on the faith that was already in his life. You know, that faith that David had, the faith that you and I have, is always there. But it becomes evident in certain circumstances. And that's the way it was here for David. How was it that David had such great faith? Let's go to Matthew chapter 22. We'll read here a principle that David well understood. We'll see then how he applied it. In Matthew chapter 22, Christ is asked, What is the great commandment of the law? Verse 37, Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's on these two, as we're told in verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This was a concept that David well understood. To love God with all his heart, with all his being, with all his mind. Now, as we say those words, what do those words look like when they're in practice in our lives? What did they look like as David put them into action? Let's turn to Psalm chapter 119. In verse 97, David says, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. All the day. He loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind. What did it show up? As in action, how did he apply that principle? Well, here we see this descriptor of how much he loved God's law. How much he thought about it. It is my meditation all the day. He thought about God's Word constantly. And it showed up in his life in the change that it produced in him, the way he approached situations. Notice what he says in verse 103. How sweet are your words unto my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. David wasn't meditating on God's law because he felt under this oppressive burden that he just had to think about it. No, he delighted in it. He compares it as being sweeter than honey. In our time, we might say that it's sweeter than chocolate. David loved God's law and God's Word. In verse 105, he says, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light 
unto my path. As a result of thinking about God's law constantly, as a result of meditating on it, he saw what we, he expressed here in verse 105, that God's word provided direction, provided guidance. It helped him to understand the route to take through life's adventures. David was a man that exhibited great faith. Here, when he was confronted with Goliath, as we read about earlier, his knee-jerk response was that of being focused on the greatness of God and how small Goliath was by contrast. David had that kind of response because he had been preparing for it. As is exhibited right here. He'd been preparing for it by thinking about God's Word all the time. He delighted in it. Now, as we think about preparing to become kings and priests, to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, what are we meditating on? You know, meditation... The right kind of meditation is not something that is well understood in society. You know, too often in society when we hear terms of meditation, it's this uh, Eastern concept where we, we let our, people let their minds go blank. You know, the, the meditation that is described in God's Word is a meditating where we are thinking about God's Word. We're thinking about what He says. We're thinking about why He said it. We're thinking about why it should be applied in our lives. We're thinking about how it should be applied in our lives. We're thinking about what it would look like as it's applied. What difference would it make? Certainly, it does make a difference. David thought about it and was filled with great faith. You know, this concept of loving God with all our heart, it should show up in our lives in what we think about. What do you meditate on? You know, what do you spend your, say, disposable time on, your free time? Is it spent filled with television? You know, for all too many people it is. And very little time is left over then for meditation. And yet, certainly, we understand that we are supposed to seek God and His kingdom and His righteousness first. Not try to fit it in after television. What are our personal standards based upon? Do we have standards that we govern our lives by? And where do those standards come from? Do they come as, the, as a result of having thought about God's Word constantly, all the day. And as we think about them, we think about how they should be applied in our lives, what they look like. Or, are our standards based on popular culture? What we see taking place around us. We know who the prince and the power of the air is. 
You know, Satan is the one who influences, who inspires what we see around us in popular culture. Our standards for, for dress, for how we attire ourselves, are they based on love for God and His, His law? And how, and love for our neighbor in trying to dress modestly so that we're not enticing others to think impure thoughts? Or are they based on what is in or cool or sexy in society? Certainly we understand that there is a difference and we understand where our standards should come from. Our idea of how we conduct ourselves in business, in relating one to another, again, should come as a result of meditating on God's Word. Our love for Him, that we meditate on His Word constantly, that we love our neighbor, and we're cognizant of how our actions affect them, and we're concerned about them, and it shows up then in our actions. As kings and priests, we are preparing to teach others. We look forward to that time. You know, right now, we may try to teach others about some concept, but unless God has opened their mind, our words, our efforts may be in vain. God has to call them. He has to open their mind. And yet, we look forward to the time pictured in these days. When we will explain to people and the light bulb will go off, they'll understand. And how wonderful that will be. But as we prepare to teach others, as we recognize that that is a future assignment or responsibility that we will have, what are we doing about that right now? How are we teaching others, our children, our grandchildren. Those are the ones that we should be teaching at this time. But too often, parents and grandparents leave the teaching in large part to television. What are the kids going to see of value? Are the sitcoms going to show how a healthy family relates? Do they show true masculinity? Do they show true femininity? A wife who is submissive to her husband in the proper way? Do they show a husband who loves and respects his wife in the proper way and is competent? Do they show children that respect their parents and obey them? Too often, that is not the lifestyle that is depicted on sitcoms. What about talk shows? Oprah Winfrey and the others. They describe and interview people who are not living and producing the fruits of God's Spirit. No, instead, they're producing fruits of a different sort. And yet, as these people are interviewed and their lifestyle is described, it's not with judgment. As it's described without passing judgment. This idea that we should be open to these different ways of doing things. Now, where is judgment 
going to be taught. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. In terms of teaching children and grandchildren, teaching our families, we, that's something that has to be done proactively. Let's notice what we read in verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently unto your children. Now, what does that look like? Was that to be that they were to sit the kids down and give them a lecture? Every day or every Sabbath and tell them you better remember these words? No, it's described for us how this teaching is to take place. You shall teach them diligently unto your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, as you are with your children or grandchildren, this is to be on your mind because you think about it all the day, just like David did. And if it's on your mind, it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It comes out. And it comes out when you're going somewhere. And this is one of the things you talk about. When you're sitting down, when you're rising up, when you're lying down in the evening, throughout the day, God's Word is on your mind and you're describing it and talking about it and discussing it with your family. If we're going to teach others, we have to prepare for that. And we prepare for that by following the instruction that we see right here. Judgment is not something, right and wrong, is not something that can be left up to schools to teach. It's certainly not taught properly on television. You can't even leave it up to the church to teach. What's described right here is something that is taught at home. And should be and is reinforced at church. But church reinforces it. It should be taught first and foremost in the home. And in doing so, we prepare for our future responsibilities. David had great faith because he thought about God's Word and how it was applied. And the difference that it makes in our lives and should make in our lives. And as a result, when he was confronted with this great obstacle, his instant knee-jerk reaction was one of living by these words of life. And it was something that stood out in contrast to all the army of Israel. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, we're told, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. That we are to 
Whatever it is that we do, whatever we put our hand to do, we're to put our all into it. To do it with all of our being. We're not to give whatever it is that we find to do a half-hearted approach. We are to put our whole being into it. This was a concept that David well understood. It was the way he lived his life, and it showed up in little ways. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll read about that. You see, David's moment here with Goliath was not something that just kind of by happen chance, right time, right place, he happened to do this, and as a result, everything in his life then went on a particular direction. David lived his life in a certain way. And as he lived that approach, it showed up in various areas. When David's words about who is this uncircumcised Philistine, when those words were repeated before Saul, and King Saul then sent for David, and David appears before him. Notice what David says to King Saul. Verse 32 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So David said, Don't worry about it. I will go. Nobody needs to be scared of this guy, intimidated of this guy. I will go and do that. You know, David wasn't even in the army. The army, you're supposed to have here the strongest of Israel, the mightiest of Israel, the bravest of Israel. And here we've got this young man who's not even in the army, and he is offering to the king that, don't worry about it, I will go and take care of this. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, you're but a youth. And he, a man of war from his youth. Notice David's response. David's response is very telling. It gives us a lot of insight into David's approach. Verse 34, David said unto Saul, Your servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and they took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I smote him and slew him. Your servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. David recounts a couple of incredible feats that he had accomplished. David, as we know, was a shepherd. And as he was tending his father's sheep, this flock, here comes a lion. And the lion didn't decimate all of the sheep. It took a lamb. It took a lamb 
And what did David do? David didn't have a gun. He didn't shoot this lion with a high-powered rifle. He went after him. You know, David didn't uh, give it his best shot with a slingshot. David went after him. Think about how easy it would have been for him to have told his father, Dad had a really tough day. There was a lion that came out. Huge lion. Biggest one I've ever seen. It took one of the sheep. Thankfully, I was able to keep the others safe, but it got the one and it got away. How easy it would have been for David to have come back and have told some story like that. And yet, that wasn't the approach that David took. Or with the bear. David didn't come back and, and tell his, his father and his brothers, you should have seen the size of this bear. I, I barely got away myself, but I managed to protect all the rest of the sheep, but he got just the one. David didn't say that. David took his job very seriously. In terms of what his hand had found to do, he did it with all his might. David didn't have this job because he was the most esteemed of his brethren. David was regarded as the runt of the family and had the job as such. And yet he took such great care to executing his job. David was filled with zeal. That's one of the things that stands out as you're familiar with the story of David throughout his life. He shows that zeal. And yet the zeal that he showed in various circumstances as he was king was consistent with the way he had lived his life from that of being a youth. He was a man with zeal, with fervor, he carried out his responsibilities with passion. And as he chased after a lion, he didn't have the, the modern armaments of hunting that would have made that a lot easier. He wasn't a big game hunter. He went after him with his, with his sword. Hand to hand. And yet... Notice also at the same time that he not only had this zeal to carry out his and fulfill his responsibilities, this care for what had been entrusted under him, but the faith that God would back him up. He recognized that he did this not because he was the greatest, but because God delivered him. He relied on God to deliver him. And thanks God for it and recognize that, you know, Goliath, as huge as he is, as daunting as he is, he's going to end up just like the bear and just like the lion. Because the God who saw me through those scrapes will deliver me through this one as well. In Proverbs 12 and verse 24, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule. 
but the hand of the slothful shall be under tribute. The hand of the diligent shall be rule, shall bear rule. You and I are preparing to be to bear rule, to be in positions of rulership and authority and responsibility, and as such, we must be diligent. David was diligent. He carried out his responsibilities with great passion, with great attention to detail. Even to the extent that he put his own life in jeopardy to protect but one sheep. You know, one little lamb. How how valuable was one little lamb in terms of a monetary value? Not that much. And yet David had such care, such diligence, to, such zeal to carrying out the responsibilities that he had been entrusted with. That he was willing to jeopardize his own life to fulfill those responsibilities. Let's compare that approach to that of Saul, the one who David replaced. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We have God giving instruction to Saul about going to war with the Amalekites. In verse 3, God tells them to go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling ox and sheep and camel and ass. God told them to go and kill everything that lived. Now, as gruesome as those instructions may be, they are very clear. Very clear. There's no room for doubt. Now, now what exactly did God want me to do? These are very clear instructions. So we read how uh, Saul went and smote the Amalekites. And yet, let's notice the approach. Verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He not only destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. God gave them some very clear instructions. And they went and they followed those instructions exactly with everything that was ugly. Everything that didn't appeal to them. But anything that caught their eye, they spared. You know, anything that was good, well, who is it that makes the determination between what is good and what is bad? God. Not us. Not them. And yet, this was the approach that Saul had to following the instructions of the Almighty. It wasn't a matter where Saul wanted to the utmost of his ability to carry out those instructions faithfully. He didn't approach God's instructions with great zeal, with great attention to hail. Instead, 
he and the people did what was right in their own sight. And certainly, let's notice the consequence. Actions have consequences. Words have meaning. God gives us these words of life so that we can change our lives. So that we can prepare to help others understand and change their lives and the kingdom. And to the extent that our lives are lived in harmony with the principles found here, our lives show that abundance and that happiness and that peace. Those words are a lamp to our feet, like David said. A lamp to our feet. They direct our steps. And to the extent where we choose a different route, where we ignore the illumination that God's Word provides, to that extent there are consequences. Now the thing about consequences is sometimes they show up instantly. And other times they show up in time. We're all familiar with certain physical laws, like the law of gravity. If you hold up a heavy object and turn loose of it, it drops. Instantly. Every time. There's not a delay. It always happens in the exact same way. And as a result, even the unconverted understand the principle of gravity. But the laws that God has set forth, not just the Ten Commandments, but the two laws that they come as a result of, and all the other indications of how those laws, those principles are to be applied. That love for God and love for neighbor, and all the ways where we gain insight into what that means in our lives in action. Those principles are just as sure, just as certain as gravity. They always produce the result. Either the result of, of blessings and, and the results that come from following and living in harmony with God's law, or they produce consequences, curses, tragedy, as a result of ignoring those consequences. If you were to step off of a tall building, you would be injured, unless you had some sort of uh, parachute. But if you were to step off just on your own, you would be injured. Not because of some terrible curse that you'd made God mad and so now He's going to strike you down, but because you broke a law, the law of gravity. And the consequences were immediately evident. Sometimes the consequences of disobeying God 
of deciding for ourselves what is right and what is wrong and what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Sometimes those consequences are evident just as quickly as if we were to break the law of gravity. And other times it may take years to show up. But nevertheless, the result is just as certain. In verse 11, God says to Samuel, It repents me that I have set up Saul to be a king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. You know, God says, I regret setting up Saul as king. He is turned aside. I am disgusted with him. There was a fairly immediate consequence. Saul was not zealous about carrying out the instructions that he had been given. He gave it a half-hearted approach. You know, when Saul came and met Samuel... Notice verse 13, Samuel said, uh, came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He says, I have done it, I have fulfilled it, I have performed it. How? In a half-hearted way. Not all the way, not fully, not completely, partially. I killed all the stuff I wanted to kill, I destroyed all the stuff I wanted to destroy. That was the extent to which he followed God's instruction. Certainly, Saul's approach to following instruction was very different from David's approach to following instruction. You know, the instruction that David would have been given as he was sent out by his father to care for the flocks. Protect them and provide for them. And David did so to the utmost of his ability, relying on God. And as a result, that was a pattern in his life. It was something that God saw about David. Let's notice another key trait. Let's go back to James, the fourth chapter. We've looked at faith. We've looked at zeal as being... Uh, different characteristics that David exhibited as a pattern in his life and why they were there. And certainly they were there prior to his being anointed king. There are undoubtedly some of the things that uh, impressed God about David. Let's notice here another character trait that David exhibited. God had said about David that not only was he somebody after his own heart, but somebody who would perform all his will. This last trait uh, gives insight into why God knew that he would perform all his will. Certainly, David had zeal, and so God knew that he would be attentive to the, the details of God's will. 
But there's something in addition to zeal that is required in order for God to have known that. In James chapter 4, verse 6, we were told that God resists the proud. God resists the proud. We can't be close to God and be filled with pride. Pride is something that comes before a fall. Pride is something that separates us from God. It causes God to resist us. Now let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to notice this humility in David's life. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 13... We read that the eldest, that the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And we read their names. And David, verse 14, and David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David, verse 15, but David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep. At Bethlehem. You know, it's at the end of chapter 16 that David is brought and given a position of responsibility before King Saul. David was brought before him to play soothing music for Saul. David had this position of responsibility here before Saul. And Saul, you know, here's the king. And David went from being a shepherd, someone who was spending his nights out under the stars watching the sheep, wasn't comfortable in his father's house. He was out tending the sheep. And David was taken from that job, from that responsibility, and elevated to here given a new job before the king, to stand before the king to be with him. And then this uh, war is about to take place. And so the king and the army go down. What did David do? Wasn't able to go there to the battle. He could have gone home and tried to impress his friends. Tell them about his new fancy job. Tell them about what it's like to work there for the king. Kind of embellish it a little bit. Talk about perhaps how the king, how much the king depends upon him. How important he is. You know, David didn't do that. He went back. And he went back to his very same old job. His recent promotion doesn't seem to have affected him. And yet, how easy would it have been for his head to have swelled with importance? And he could have gone back and, and told his family, the brothers that were still there, told his friends, told his father about his great job and responsibility and how indispensable he was. 
And yet we certainly don't read that. We read the actions of a young man who has humility, even though he has been elevated in position. David has been anointed as king. And yet, that does not seem to have affected his ability to go back home and get back to work in the fields, with the, pick up where he left off with his old job tending his father's sheep. He had not, you know, we have the expression, somebody who is filled with pride has gotten too big for their britches. And yet, David hadn't. He had that attitude of humility. Let's contrast that with Saul's attitude. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You remember we were here earlier. We saw God's instruction to, to Saul. We saw how Saul did not follow those instructions. And yet how he claimed to have done so. And now we see here correction from Samuel. Verse 17, uh, this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 17. And Samuel said to Saul, When you were little in your own sight, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? The Lord sent you on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they be consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel begins by saying, You know, when you were little in your own sight, once upon a time when you were a man with humility, you were elevated. You were given a promotion, a great responsibility. And yet it's gone to your head. You're no longer little in your own sight. You haven't heeded the instructions that you were given. Verse 20. Saul said unto Samuel, Yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And have gone the way that the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, and chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Verse 22, and Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Those are harsh words. And yet they're the result of great disobedience. God said of David, we read this earlier in Acts 13.22, not only was he someone after his own heart, which shall 
perform all my will. Did God think that David was perfect? No. We know that. It's not true. God was not under the illusion that I have found the perfect one of Israel. No. He knew David was not perfect. Yet his approach was an approach that God saw as being similar to his own. After my own heart. That God recognized in David these qualities of faith. His eye on God. His relationship with God. He recognized in David this zeal to carry out instructions that he was given to the utmost of his ability. And yet, we all fall short at times. But God said of David, which shall perform all my will. God was certain, not that David would never make a mistake, but that David would follow God's will. He would follow those instructions. Why? He knew David would make mistakes. But he knew David was a man of humility. He saw that in David. He saw that in the way that David approached his job. He saw that in the way that David lived his life. Now, a quality of humility in our life means more than just we're not seeking to exalt ourselves. That's part of it. But there's another part of humility as well. And that is someone who is truly humble receives correction. You see, correction can be given and get turned away, deflected, refused. And as we read right here, we see that Saul does exactly that when he is corrected by Samuel. He refuses it. He turns it away. He said, that doesn't apply. I have fulfilled what God told me to do. And yet, he was someone who was no longer humble. He was someone who was filled, exalted with pride. That shows up in David's life. Think about his sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel come, uh, Nathan rather comes in and corrects David about this adulterous affair that he has had with Bathsheba. Tells this story about this man, that it, these two men that had sheep. David is incensed when he sees the sin of this other fellow. And Nathan points out that, verse 7, that you are that man. You're the one who's done this. This is a story, an analogy about the sin in your life. And David's response is not one of self-justification. In verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. His response is, I have sinned. His response is one of humility. He doesn't order Nathan to be jailed. You know, read back chapter 11. Read about how it was Bathsheba who came out onto her uh, rooftop. 
and was washing where the king could see. David doesn't offer an excuse. Yeah, but she tricked me. She did this. No. He takes responsibility. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Let's go to Psalm chapter 51. A psalm written in the aftermath of David receiving this correction from God's servant. David's response is not one of justification, but rather that of humility. He says, have mercy upon me. Verse 1, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David asks for forgiveness. Verse 3, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't make excuses. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. You know, he acknowledges that God wants obedience from the heart. He acknowledges that he has fallen short. Verse 9, Hide not your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David asked for forgiveness. He asked for mercy. David's attitude when he messed up, and he messed up big time. This was not a careless slip. This was a slip that took place over, over a great period of time. First the adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband. And yet when David is corrected, God knew that he would take that correction to heart. He knew that although David would make mistakes, he will perform all my will because he was a man who exhibited humility. And as he, since he had humility, he would take correction, he would receive it, and he would take it to heart. Quite a contrast between the attitude, the excuses, and justification that Saul offered. God was looking for someone to reign over his people. Someone who would do all his will. He saw in David certain qualities that stood out and impressed him from all of Israel. And he recognized in David someone who he could use to rule his people. God was looking for someone who was building godly character. Someone who was after his own heart. As God is preparing future kings and priests to reign with Jesus Christ at his return, he's looking for the same thing, the same qualities. Let's recognize what we are in training for. Let's strive to develop the qualities that God is looking for in a king.